welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Normally just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about it or reporting on it. <laughs> talking about it. We have a very special guest here with us today, Jennifer Romolini. Welcome to the show. Oh God, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really psyched to be here. We're excited to have you too. Jennifer is an award-winning author, editor, and author of Weird in a World That's Not, a career guide for misfits. She has worked for magazines such as Talk, Lucky, Glamour, Cosmo, and Allure, but she's here with us today to chat about her podcast, Stift, which focuses on the history of the erotic magazine for women, Viva. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, okay. Just a little. Um, hi. So- <laughs> Um, I'm just a longtime media person. I'm a longtime writer, journalist, editor. You know, I was um, kind of came up through print was my first jobs were in print. I was a fact checker at a lot of women's magazines. I worked at Talk Magazine with Tina Brown and Harvey Weinstein, which was crazy. Um, and then I... Um, then I was in digital for a long time. I was the the editor in chief of Hello Giggles. I was um before that sold to Time Inc. I I've just I've been around for a while doing a bunch of things and now I mostly write books and make podca- podcasts. I also have a podcast for women over 40 called Everything is Fine and I just finished um just turned in a couple of weeks ago my second book which is called Ambition Monster which is about um workaholism. Perfect. Well, all that sounds, I feel like we could do an episode on all of the things you've done. (laughs) Um, But before we get into Stift, we have to talk about this Stift drink we made for you. Um, So this is a cocktail that I wanted to create um, based off of a classic 70s drink. Uh, This is one I found online called the Harvey Wallbanger. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I was on like every list of 70s cocktails, but I switched it up a little bit. So it is vanilla vodka, orange juice, sour cherry liqueur, and you shake that all up and you garnish it with fresh mint. <laughs> oh my God. Incredible. That's, I've had that drink. That is a delicious drink. That is a good, good choice. Ah, and your ah. version is very good as well. <laughs> so before we dive into your podcast, we wanted to set the scene a little bit. Your podcast focuses on an erotic magazine for women in the 1970s. What was the sexual scene like for women in the 1970s? So it's really interesting. So the, so the Viva magazine, which is produced by Bob Guccione, who's this, this porn king who'd been who'd put out penthouse like five years before he put out Viva. Um, we're in the seventies when this comes out, but really the sexual revolution starts in the late sixties. And the late sixties is when we're starting the women's revelation, women's uh, liberation movement. There's a lot of emphasis, emphasis on women's sexuality, on women's pleasure, on the clitoral orgasm. Women are really starting to say, Hey, we want to center our pleasure. And we are, we are sick of centering the penis. You know, the pill had just come out in the sixties. And then by the time Viva comes out, 1973, V. Wade was passed. So now we're in a time of immense liberation, or at least it seems like it's going to be that. But what we find out is that the sexual revolution, which happens in the 70s, and, and that's what we think of as like a, you know, that's when Deep Throat comes out, all these porns come out, like all this mainstream porn comes out, is actually not that revolutionary for women at all. And that's kind of what the story of Viva and this podcast tracks. 
Because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, it started by Bob Guccione. It's kind of a spinoff of Penthouse. And can you tell our listeners a little bit more about him and how he was really forward thinking, but also kind of held women back at the same time? Well, you know, he's a product of his time, right? So Bob Guccione is is not as bad as Hugh Hefner, right? Most people know Hugh Hefner. He's actually not as much of a sleazebag, even though he's thought of as more of a sleazebag. And this is entirely because of how he dressed. He was like unbuttoned to the navel shirts, gold chains. He had like a, he had a chain that was like the, the charm on it was shaped like his own penis. He, he was greasy, you know, he was an Italian American. He just looks like this like caricature of the seventies and masculinity. And he's this really deep voice. You know, and but ultimately he loved women and he was incredibly supportive of women, I think, especially for the time. He was very progressive. The top executives at Penthouse were all women. He paid women well in a time when people were not doing that. He made women editor in chief. You know, he he other publications, including places like Newsweek, were not giving women bylines or those kinds of opportunities. So in some ways, he's incredibly progressive, but at the same time, he's still like dominating and, you know, thinks he knows best. And he's the kind of man that we've all come to know if you, if you're a woman who's worked anywhere, you know, just sort of dominating, throwing his weight around. Mm. So In terms of Bob and kind of missing the mark a little bit, it sounds like the first issue of Viva was heavily controlled by him, but it was pretty wild. Can you tell us a little bit about that issue and how Nora Ephron got involved? So the first issue of Viva, so, so there, you know, there's, there's some confusion if Viva was actually conceived by a woman or if it was conceived by Bob Guccione. Did he steal this woman's idea? We won't really know. We can't really know. She says he did. His son says he didn't. Who knows? But I do know from reporting this out that the first issue of Viva is entirely Bob Guccione's idea of what women want sexually. And it is hilarious. It involves like erotic pocket watches. Like, I don't know what woman is like. And it's like a six page spread of erotic. It's like one story. It's just like it goes on forever. There's like a sexy picnic that's like just serving up a woman's naked body. There's just like boobs and, and it's like also old timey and like in the Victorian time, like everything about this is crazy. And then like the writers he got for this is like, he got Norman Mailer, like a known misogynist <laughs> to write in the first issue of Eva. And he kind of writes a misogynistic essay. So, and also it's mostly all men, all male writers in the first issue and, all of the the pornography in Viva, all the erotica was always shot by male photographers, which is why it was kind of just a mess from the beginning and always. It, that that part of Viva was never a success because they never it was never seen through a woman's lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about this and you know how it's just kind of missing the mark a little bit, but there are women in the company who really have faith in this idea. They're like, this could be amazing, but yeah. you know it sounds like Bob had a little bit too much control over it. So there's one section of your podcast that I love where you're talking about, I believe it's something called like the graffiti wall in where they kind of started to be able to express their opinions and maybe write some of the more feminist stuff and without it getting taken out. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how they started getting more into the magazine? So just to back up a tiny bit. So Mm -hmm. the interesting thing here is that even though in these first couple of issues, it's Bob Guccione controlled and it's all of his ideas. He had 
he had an eye for, for smart female talent. And he hired a lot of smart feminist writers, you know, women who had been writing for the village voice, uh, women who had just graduated Cornell, like women who had worked at Newsweek. Like these were some of the best feminist writers and editors of the time. Now, this magazine is beautifully produced. Bob Guccione was an artist at heart. It's glossy pages. It was very expensive to produce. It's a, it's a work of art. And so he is very, very uptight about all of these glossy pages. But in the middle of the magazine is something called the graffiti section that's printed on brown paper bag paper. That's what it looks like. It just looks so disposable. And he just didn't care about it. Mm-hmm. So what these women, these smart feminists did, because they knew he wasn't reading it, they just took over this section and they just brought in such amazing writing and, and criticism and essays and you know, essays about open marriage and about like, wait, I don't need a husband. I need a wife. And just all these like really progressive ideas and about bisexuality. And it's all in this section and including like reviewing like, you know, Toni Morrison's books and just this, just really just the coolest magazine you could imagine that looks so terrible and disposable, (laughs) but they knew it. They just sort of worked around him. They found a way in. Wow. And so while you were doing the research for this podcast, did your opinions about Viva change? Were you ever like, that's a great plan. That's a bad plan. Like how did you kind of your scope of imagination about the magazine change over time? What was interesting was because I found Viva when I was working in women's magazines. I was in women's magazines in the 2000s and I was writing a column about vintage shopping on eBay. And that's how I found the magazine originally. So I'd been in magazines and I had always wanted to be in magazines. Like that was the only job I had ever wanted. And then when I got into them, I found that they were not as satisfying as I thought, particularly then women's magazines were really misogynistic. They were really, you know, sort of self-loathing. It it was not great. And I really had spent a long time studying Viva because it didn't make sense as a magazine. It's got all these like, you know, flaccid penises and all this smart feminist writing. So I had an idea of what it was. And I think ultimately the podcast bore out what I thought was <laughs> what I thought was actually going on, which was a, a man sort of puppeting a lot of women being like, but wait, there's all this other smart stuff, you know, and ultimately mismanagement, corporate, you know, money people as happens in every cre- creative enterprise, it's just being like, well, no, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And then it winds up being identity whiplash. And I kind of went in thinking that, and the story, the story bore that out. Um, you know, there were, there were surprising, there were surprising moments, you know, I didn't know they hated, they hated the, all the female editors hated the the male nudes, like it despised them. I, I didn't know that. Like they were just like, ugh, I can't believe we have to work around these dongs. Like this is horrible, but you know, so th- I think that was surprising. And then the other thing that was surprising was Kathy Keaton is a very compelling character. Kathy Keaton was Bob Guccione's partner and then wife. She was at one one point the highest paid exotic dancer in the world. And then she became this like mega like publisher, like very successful publishing executive. And 
she actually drove his business. And I don't think I knew that going in. And once she died, she died pretty young, his business collapsed. So there would have been no Guccione empire without Kathy Keaton. And I think people don't realize that. I don't think that she's gotten the credit she deserves. Hmm. Yeah, she was a really fascinating character that, you know, I just wasn't expecting her story in the middle of this magazine empire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I just, I loved her. And I kind of loved too that like, people really couldn't nail her down, even when she was alive and working with them. Like, you know, I love the way your podcast kind of weaves it through of like, someone be like, she wasn't doing anything. And so I was like, oh no, she was doing everything. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So was and that she, hard, like talking to people and like getting these different versions of what was going on? It was great. Like, I mean, of course you love that. Like I, you know, I mean, any kind of reporting is a scavenger hunt, right? And you're just like looking for clues and breadcrumbs. And, you know, a lot of the people, most, everybody I talk to, most everybody I talk to is in their seventies and eighties. So what do they remember about this time? What do they remember about these people? And what was cool about it isn't even if they felt different things, they all had very strong opinions, right? So then I got to kind of piece that together and piece, piece together who she was. I mean, she was so weird and savvy. And like, I love one of my favorite stories is the story about how she hired, she had come up, she would come to work every day in a limo and she hired someone to stand outside of the office and say, is that Kathy Keaton? Like, <laughs> it's my favorite thing because it's so like early influencer. It's so yeah. her, like, you know, like, I think Kathy would have been, I think Kathy was so ahead of her time. I think she would have done really well in the digital age. You know, she, she, she just was, she was amazing. Her self-presentation, she always was dressed like super sexy. She just knew how to sort of move through a room. And I, I found her so impressive ultimately. I'm going to have to start paying my daughters to do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you spoke with a lot of people, obviously, in doing research and and producing the show. Were there any interviews that were like standouts for you that you were like, this was a really incredible conversation to have? Yes. So, and that's a really good question because it's, it's, it's really interesting to speak to women in their seventies and eighties from a totally different time. What are they going to remember? What aren't they? What will they be willing to talk to me about? Right. Because there's still so much shame around sexuality and around these kinds of topics. So on a Friday, I had, I had a week of reporting in New York and I was just packed with interviews the whole week. Cause a lot of these women are still in New York or around New York. On the last day, it's a Friday afternoon. I have an hour booked with a woman named Dr. Judy Kuriansky. And I think, okay, we're going to go in here. It's three o'clock, you know, whatever. The interview wound up lasting three and a half hours. She is the most amazing person. She like works for the UN now. Like she, she's the most amazing and she's in her eighties and she, she still is like her hair, like dyed perfectly red. And she's like totally done to the nines. And she was so cool and we just couldn't stop talking. And I knew I was getting such good information from her, but also that I just wanted to keep talking to her. It was one of those things. One of the coolest parts of this, this project was, you know, being not as old as these women myself, you know, being a a woman in in my forties and seeing these women and being like, oh, that's what I want to be when I grow up, you know, like that's who I want to be. That's amazing. I interviewed this this um, photographer who worked with Anna Wintour. She was one of the few fashion female fashion photographers in the seventies. There, there were like none of them. 
I went to her studio. She's still working. She's in her eighties, like amazing. And like, I just felt so inspired by their work and how they thought about their work and the longevity of their careers, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess like Judy Kuriansky, Dr. Judy, God damn, she's so fun. And she's, she makes the podcast. She also has the best voice in the world. So like every time you hear her, the, the podcast just totally comes alive because she's so funny and she's so doesn't mind being explicit, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> While you were talking to some of the women who had worked in print media, you know, obviously you worked in print media. So was it kind of a frustrating thing of like, oh, these are things we're still dealing with now. Like, <laughs> did you have any of those moments, like where you could still commiserate over sexism in the industry? Or did you actually get to see some kind of progress and like, oh, wait, things are actually a little bit better now? <laughs> well, no, in many ways it was worse. You know, I, I, I was talking to one of the writers, Annie Gottlieb, and she was like, we got paid nothing. We made like $500 an article. And I was like, what? <laughs> like $500 an article, like 50 years later is a lot of money for an article today, like for a digital media article. So in some ways it felt like things had gotten worse, which was depressing, um, and also in terms of, you know, political progress, in terms of women's issues, that was, I was reporting this out as Roe v. Wade was being overturned. And these women were very sad about this because they had fought so hard and they thought they were done. And they really thought that this magazine and this moment was going to change things forever. And they didn't know that by the end of this decade, the 70s, the moral majority was coming in, Reagan was coming in, and things were going to be rolled back. And we've never really made that same kind of progress since, you know? So that was that was a really hard part of the show that I, I tried not to dwell on too much because who wants to hear that shit? You know what I mean? It's too depressing. Can I curse on your podcast? Oh, oh yeah. My God. <laughs> Because who wants to hear that? And it's like too depressing. You know, I, I really tried to leave it on a hopeful note that we can keep, we can keep the movement moving forward. You know, we can sort of take the work that these women did and try to move it forward. That's really the, the, the hope that I was trying to leave people with. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was kind of a bummer, but it was good that I had been in print because I was able to talk, speak their language. So we were able to talk about magazines and be like, oh, you know, when a close is blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh yeah, of course I know, you know? So that was, that was incredibly useful for me. Well, I think what's so interesting is your show, it has a great thumbnail image. It's so bright and colorful. It's captivating. It has a really great topic that you can give really easily in an elevator pitch. So when, when you're telling people and when you know people are sitting down to listen, what do you want them to like walk away from your like kind of it's eight episodes, right? Like your mini series with. Yeah. I mean, I guess that the top line is the sexual revolution wasn't that revolutionary for women. Right. So I, I guess that's part of it. But really. The show is ostensibly about sexual desire. Like that's, that's what it looks, you know, it's like all, it's like all these dicks and it's like, oh my God. And, and anything that's ever been talked about with this magazine has always been about the full frontal nudity, nudity, full mm -hmm. frontal nudity, because that's was revolutionary for the time. But for me, and particularly in the work that I've done, which is a lot about women and their careers, I found that this was actually a story about professional desire. 
And I felt like that was so universal, like getting to do what you want to do without men getting in your way. And I, I really think that that's the end message of this, of this show. And I, I don't, sometimes there's been like a couple of stories about the show that have picked up on that. And I'm like, Oh, you got it. You know, <laughs> but like, you know, and even one of them says like, you know, that of course we could, we could fuck anyone we wanted. Like, Oh, yay. What I actually wanted to do was have a career and make my own money and put my mark on something. And I think that's what we all want. Right. right? So I, I, I found that to be, the sort of most compelling thesis, though that's not how I sold it. I sold it on the dicks, you know. But like, you're like, there are glitter-covered, flaccid penises in the story somewhere, so just stay tuned. Exactly, exactly. Let me tell you something. Right? <laughs> got to use those dicks for something. Exactly, they got to be good for something, right? <laughs> well, we tried to keep this, you know, a little on the surface so people can really get into the story because obviously, Spoilies, again, we, we don't want spoil. too many spoilers because Anna Wintour makes an appearance in episode seven, which is really yes. exciting because <laughs> she's such a household name. And I absolutely love that she will not talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the best. It's the best. It was the best. <laughs> oh, so I just love it. I hope everyone goes out and binges this podcast. It's just so good. And I, I learned so so much this week. <laughs> and so where can people find this podcast and your other podcast and you on the internet and your book <laughs> and your books? Oh, my books. Okay. So you can find Stift wherever you find podcasts. You know how that goes. Yeah. You can find everything is fine wherever you find podcasts. You can find me at Jen Romolini across all socials. My website is Jennifer Romolini where I dot com where I do updates about what's going on with me. But yeah, mostly I just really wanted to resurrect these women's work. And I'm so grateful that people are liking it. And thank you so much for taking the interest in it. I really appreciate it a lot. Oh, yeah, well, it's so cool. We love women's issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny too. We're doing Toni Morrison later today yeah. uh, on the podcast. So. Oh, <laughs> wow. Oh, how cool. How cool. That's going to be wow. great. And I got some more ideas from people to cover uh, from oh, the podcast. Yeah. So I'm Kathy excited Keaton. to kind of, yeah, we have to <laughs> Here <now>. we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nancy Friday, man. That was, she yeah. was amazing. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot um, there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been such a blast talking to you. Thank you for being here. And we can't wait to talk again when more of your stuff comes out. Thank you, ladies. And I love what you do. I love your work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 